Hello, and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're going to talk about the difference between freelancers and business owners. Yeah. Won't that be fun? Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Well, what do you think is the is the key difference? Well, uh, freelancers are business owners. The problem is they often don't realize it or they don't realize what running a business is like. I wrote an entire book about this called The Freelancer's Roadmap, which is sort of a step-by-step instructions of how to go from being what I would call a freelancer. Maybe maybe you call yourself a contractor. Maybe you call yourself uh, a developer or designer, but you're basically a freelancer, a contract employee who doesn't spend any time working on their business. They spend all their time working in their business, doing their work, executing the activities of their craft for some other business owner. The second that you quit your job and you say, I'm out of here, I'm going to go do this solo, I'm not getting paid enough money or whatever your dissatisfaction is with your your W-2 job. As soon as you hang your own shingle out there, you started a business, whether you know it or not, or whether you like it or not. The problem that people run into, people who have this mentality that I'm a freelancer, is that they can get by, you know, sort of build it and they will come. They can get by just being awesome at their craft. Like I'm an amazing animator or I'm an amazing illustrator or I'm an amazing software developer and I'll just naturally get business. But when you look at the functions of any company, like look at the C-suite of any company, there's a finance person, there's a marketing person, there's an operations person, there's the CEO setting the, the vision for the company. There's all these things. You don't, you never see like the production people, there's no representative of production and at the highest levels of a business because that's not the most important piece. But freelancers think of it like, you know, and this is including me too. I, when I was first went on my own, I was a freelance FileMaker developer and I was really impressed with myself how much I knew about FileMaker and how I could make it stand on its head and do all <laughs> these things, the tips and tricks to the end of the horizon. But when it comes right down to it, you need to if you want to grow past the first couple of years and not just be on this hamster wheel of feast famine, you know, working so hard you can't make a living type of lifestyle, you need to start thinking about your business like a business and spend some actual time on things like marketing and get someone to handle your finances, have a vision or a strategy or some sort of plan for the business, like all of these things. And you, if you're working like a dog 40 hours a week, for some client or multiple clients, you're not, most people are not going to have the energy to then devote an additional, I think 10 or at least 10 or 20 hours a week on top of that to building their own business instead of just building somebody else's business for them. So to me, it's, it's just a mind shift of going from like, okay, I'm a freelancer to being like, okay, I'm a business owner. I'm a business person who happens to develop apps or whatever the actual craft is. When you were talking, I kept thinking about a craftsman. I would think of like a, a woodworker, for example, who makes beautiful furniture, right? And But if you don't have a way to sell it, if you don't have a way to market it, if you don't have a way to leverage the time that you put into it, if you don't have a way to price it properly, you don't really have a business, you have a craft, and you're at the whim of, every client that walks through your real or virtual door. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You have a hobby. It's, it's a hobby and you might be getting paid for it, but you're not building a business. So it's, it, to me, it's closer to a hobby than a business. 
what happens with a lot of freelancers, I've seen it over and over, is they get fed up with their day job. Uh, they, they learn some skill at their day job. They're great at this thing. They feel like a sense of mastery over the skill, whatever it is their craft, whether it's making furniture or, or painting uh, or developing software. And they get fed up. For some reason, they get dissatisfied with the W-2 type of arrangement and they go solo. Maybe their boss was a jerk or maybe they felt like they weren't getting paid enough or maybe they couldn't stand the meetings anymore, whatever it was. And they go out on their own. And they tell their family and they tell their friends and everybody they work with knows. And there's this big story. It's a big story. Someone is making a leap of faith. They're going on their own. Uh, they're taking a risk. And that story spreads. And they told two friends and they told two friends. And what do you know? Like magic, you start to get some work. And you're like, wow, this isn't so hard after all. And <laughs> fast forward two years. Now there's no more story. And you've done no marketing. And other people, you're starting to recognize that people on Fiverr or Upwork do the same thing. And what do you know? Clients can't tell the difference between me and somebody on Upwork. And even though you might believe in your heart of hearts that you're better at your craft than somebody charging $5 an hour on Fiverr or Upwork, if the clients can't tell the difference, they're going to go with the cheaper one because that's the thing. That's the only thing they understand given no other differentiators. And to your point about the furniture maker, there's uh, just an amazing book that I read years and years ago, and it affected me so deeply that when I reread it many years later, I forgot how much I learned from that book. And that book is called The E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber. And he talks about the three personality types that exist within a business. There's the entrepreneur personality type, there's the technician personality type, and there's the manager personality type. I think I have those right. And the technician is what you're talking about and what most freelancers see them as. They're like at their job, they don't think managers do anything but slow them down from doing their best work. And they don't see any value in anything that people in upper management do. They think it's all a waste of time. And can you believe they're billing me out at twice as much as they're paying me? And <laughs> right, I've been there. It was, I yeah. did that. I did that. You're doing the math. All of a sudden you're like, wait a second, they're making $50 an hour off me and they don't do anything. It's like, yeah, well, guess what? They do do a lot of things. And when you go solo, you have to do those things too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. And it takes like at least 20 hours a week. So he talks about how the, these three personalities need to exist, even in a solo business, and uh, the difference between them and the inherent friction, and that the friction is never supposed to go away because it's sort of this uh, balance of power between these three sorts of personalities that you need the CEO pushing things forward. Otherwise, the technician is going to or the manager is going to want to operationalize everything and, and turn it into this like well-oiled machine. But then innovation dies because you can't you can't innovate based on what you've done in the past. You have to always be breaking the old machine. So there's, there's just this natural conflict all the way around. Anyway. <laughs> I could talk about this all day. In case you couldn't tell, I, I, I have to get on this soapbox a lot with people. The interesting point of those three personalities is when you are a solo, when you're a freelancer, when you're running a business or you're running a business by yourself, you have to have some combination of those three in you or you have to find people to help you with that. Like I have a virtual assistant who actually helps me with the manager part. There's no part of me that likes to manage people or even things. I, I just really don't like to do that. And when you're first starting, you have to find all these within yourself because you usually don't have much of a budget to hire out anything. You need almost your your sounding board of people that can look at these things that way. 
the other thing that I wanted to mention is you talked about the first two years of, of consulting. And I used to tell this to, to corporate people all the time. It's like your first year is not your hardest. Your first year is your easiest. It's hard in the sense that everything's new and you're figuring it out, but everybody wants to help you. To your point on the story, everybody wants to help you. And then after the first year, because you've been so busy meeting with people and, and building on the energy that you've created that you don't invest long term. And so you get to that second year and you're like, oh, my God, now what do I do? There's this thing that can happen sometimes. I call it the accidental consultant. And this was when layoffs really started in corporate America. So you would get the the top of, of a corporate function. So it could be the VP of HR or the director of systems or technology. And what would happen is they'd be downsized out of a job in a merger. And really what they want is another job. They really don't want to be a consultant. So they kind of set themselves up as a freelancer. They get some business cards. They do some consulting projects, you know, a few here and a few there, just enough to keep the, the lights on, right, and, and food in the fridge. But it's not developing into something else because they really don't want to. So there's that sort of subset in freelancers that I think of as accidental and they really don't plan to stay there. Yep. Yeah. So they don't do anything to build for the long term, like, oh, I don't know, write a book or anything that's like not directly related to billable work or client work. They just don't do it because it's like a placeholder. They're just biding time, treading water until they can get another offer. Well, and I think one of the differences in my mind between being a freelancer and running a business is having processes that you follow. So as an example, if you let's say you do sales consulting, as an example, and so you want to have a framework that says, okay, I'm going to interview the top people in the organization, I am going to survey or interview this slice of customers, this is how I'm going to speak with the salespeople, this is the analytical data that I need, and this is what I do with it. And this is what you the client get. That to me is different than let me come in and work a few days, right? And and bill you by the hour, by the day, and I'll tell you what I find when I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I, I don't know what to say. It's like here's the here's the real kick in the pants. The reason why I'm hesitating is because this is like where the tough love section of the podcast comes. Almost everybody I work with, almost everybody certainly almost everybody on my mailing list is in love with the activities that they engage in their craft. They're in love with their craft. I ask people, what are your passions? I love coding. Immediately. I'm like, okay, technician, they see themselves as the one who's adding all the value, which is wrong. If technicians are listening, they're like, right now they just rip their headphones out. They're like, you don't know what you're talking about. Tr trust me, you're wrong. That's not where the value comes from. Values knowing how to apply those skills to something that is going to create business value. And I can prove that almost nobody who's a technician understands what that is because when I ask them, I'll say like, well, why, what business outcomes do your clients get from you? And they never know. They have no idea. They're just like, well, I put in the time, they owe me the money. And it's like, yeah, but they didn't pay you the, the money so they could get 10,000 lines of code. They don't need 10,000 lines of code. Like what needle were they trying to move with their business when they hired you? What change were they trying to make with your assistance? And they never know. They have no idea. 
And that's where the value comes from. Knowing the answer to that question is where value comes from. And if the business owner, your client, is the only person who knows the answer to that question, then they're the only one making the value because you're, or at least taking the risk to attempt to build some business value. The person who executes it is, in, in many cases, interchangeable as far as the business owner is concerned. If not interchangeable, there are certainly lots of other options. If you aren't hip to the value that you're creating for the business, whether that is increasing the bottom line by 10% or improving morale across the organization, you know, it could be tangible or intangible. It could be top line, bottom line, or just completely intangible somewhere in between. If you don't know that, then you're not there yet. You need to find out what that is. Well, and plus that's the basis of your brand too. I mean, it's how you, how you create that value or another way that we've said this on this podcast many times is how you transform your client. How are they different after you're done than they were before they, they worked with you? And it's the essence of that transformation is how you derive value. It's how you price ideally, and it's how you define and build and market your brand. Right. And, and I'm glad you mentioned price, of course, because that's like, to <laughs> me, that's the angle on everything. It's like, if you want to, uh, here's another way to know that you've got work to do. If you feel like you're competing on price against amateurs and losing the business or having to undercut the amateurs, then you know, you've got work to do because your story is weak. People don't, they're not connecting the dots between how awesome you are. Cause I know you're awesome. I get it. You know, you are, but the clients don't see it. Why don't the clients see it? Because they don't do what you do. Your colleagues might think you're the best whatever you are in the world because they understand how hard it is to be get good at whatever the thing is. But clients don't get that. Clients are way, way, way higher up. They're sort of like 30,000 feet up and they can't see how amazing you're being down on the ground. And they don't really care either. They just want to know that you're going to decrease their bounce rate on their website or whatever the, you know, whatever the desired business outcome is. So if you can connect the dot, if you could figure out what that is, because I, I promise you, there's probably not a client in your past that didn't have some metric like that in their head. If you can figure out what those things are and start talking about that instead, well, then all of a sudden you're going to look a lot different than somebody charging $25 an hour on Upwork. Yeah. You, you have to be able to have that conversation to make a difference. And that's also what starts to help you develop your voice and when I say voice, I don't just mean like a brand voice, like how you talk in, in communications, but beyond that, your voice with clients, what they can expect from you, what you deliver. And it allows you to keep honing, honing, honing and develop content and a big idea and all the things that we've talked about that constitute becoming an authority because you can't become an authority as a freelancer. Right. Because you're being told what to do all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You're not the authority. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's yep. a, here's another clue. Here's another clue, dear listener. In a, a lot of situations, I hear this. I have this one designer friend who just, I just, <laughs> she says this all the time. She's like, oh, you know, but it's easy for you, Jonathan Stark, because you uh, do software, you're a developer, you write code. They don't, you know, clients don't have an opinion about code. I am a designer and everybody's got an opinion about design and I need to spend half the time educating them about why I picked these, this type and why this color is better than that color. And I'm like, if that sounds familiar and you sound like my designer friend, you, you, you haven't got the memo yet. If you're getting paid by a business to design something for them, 
and let's just let's just stick with the decoration style of design because I know there's a debate about what even design is. But let's just say they want you to do that decorator kind of design where you're making stuff pretty on a website or something like that or in a slide deck. You're making things pretty. Well, somebody says, hey, we'd like you. You're a designer. You make pretty things. We'd like you to make this thing pretty. And you could say. You could say yes, and you go in there and you do all of your best practices and you bring all of your skills to bear and you make the thing pretty and they hate it. They're like, oh, I like option two a little bit. I like this piece of option two and I like this piece of option three. So can you put those two things together and turn it into the like, you know, right? Everybody's cringing because that's a Frankenstein disaster area. Yeah. If somebody came to me and said, we want you to make this thing pretty. We see that you'd make lots of pretty things. And you say, okay, why? Why do you want that to be pretty? And then you go down the whole why conversation. If you can't come out with some answer that has a measurable business outcome, and I promise you that either you can do this or if you can't do it, you shouldn't take the job or you're just going to get micromanaged into, you know, half of option two, half, half of option three. People do not write you a check for $5,000 and not expect to get some positive ROI on that. They just aren't. They're getting, they're getting something out of it that's worth it to them. And it's not a, it's not this pretty piece. It's maybe how their audience is going to react to their slides, or it's one big, one piece of a overall presentation that they're doing to a venture capitalists. And they want everything to be perfect because they want to raise another $2 billion. There's some reason, and it's a business reason, and you can almost certainly measure it because they're measuring it because they know it's, there's something wrong. They know something's wrong and they want to change it. So that means that they are detecting the existence of a problem and they will be able to detect when that problem is gone. So if you don't know what that problem is or opportunity could be an opportunity they're trying to capture. But if you don't know what that thing is, you're just, you know, back to my dribbling in the infinite basketball court in the dark. You're just like dribbling around. Look how great I dribble. I'm an amazing dribbler. I can spin it on my finger. I can do all this stuff, but you're never going to score any points. You just like ball handling. So stop handling your ball and figure out where the goal is. We, we need a different analogy for me. <laughs> I know. I'm not a sports guy either. That was terrible. You're going to have to like pull me off with a hook because I can't stop talking about this. It's like it drives me nuts. It's so frustrating. Well, let's talk about some more differentiators between thinking like a freelancer and thinking like a business owner. So, I mean, we talked a little bit about processes. What about developing content or things for sale besides you by the hour? Yep. So leveraging your expertise, packaging it up in a variety of ways. We did an earlier episode on building a product service ladder. That's a a perfect example. Creating content and, and putting a point of view in the world that is going to piss some people off because they disagree with it. If you're not making some enemies, you're not making any uh, allies. Oh, that's good. Let's tweet that. (laughs) (laughs) Tweeting. I put that in kind of a sort of a jerky tone. You don't have to be like that. You don't have to be a troll. Um, You can just be, you know, hey, I believe that things should be like this. And if you don't want things to be like that, then we shouldn't work together. You don't have to be like, you know, finger pointy about it. You can just be like, look. This is the way I think design can be applied to business to create value. If you don't, if you don't agree with that, that's fine. I'm not for everybody. I'm, I'm for some people. I'm not for everybody. You don't get the joke, then we don't need to work together. So that's fine. But explaining to the, the joke to them isn't going to make it any funnier. Like they either get it or they don't. So creating a point of view, sticking with it, being authentic, being consistent with that point of view. And saying no. 
saying no. When somebody wants you to do something that's outside of your point of view, you have to say no. You have to say no. Right. Yeah. For your sanity, for your integrity, for building your brand. Because every time you say no, you're going to attract a new yes. Totally agree. And yeah. I know, I know like people who are, who are in that second year, that sort of sophomore slump of freelancing, they can't imagine saying no to a lead. They barely, yeah. <laughs> they barely get enough money to, they're toward the end of a contract. The client said six months ago, oh yeah, we're going to, we're going to, you know, have to phase you out. It's been great, but we're going to have to phase you out because we're going to go in a different direction. And then six months comes and goes and you're still, they're still like, oh, well, they haven't quite gotten rid of you yet, but you know, it's coming any minute. And you're just working like crazy hours to get as much money as you can so that when they do finally pull the trigger, then you've at least got some money saved up. But you're not doing any marketing. You're not doing any. Uh, you're just going to have to like you just gonna have to interrupt me. I'm going to keep that just ranting. sounds horrible. I'm listening to that going. Why would anybody sign up for that? It's so sad. Right. So if you want to raise your prices, if you want to build your business, you need to take a stand, you need, which means saying no to some leads, some, you know, you see, you've seen the red flags and you've taken them anyway because you needed the money, but you saw the red flags. You should start saying no to those. And the yes clients are going to be more profitable. They're going to allow you to leverage your expertise more easily. So, yeah, so let's talk about that. So um, packaging up your expertise, let, let's say you are just an amazing craftsperson, you make custom furniture, you work with your hands with wood tools, and that is like the majority of activities that you engage in business-wise, that's what you do. You make, let's say chairs, but you, you work in a shop for somebody else, you want to go solo and make chairs for yourself. So there are ways that you can package all of the expertise that you have making chairs into high touch and low touch sales versus delivery, which is, this is going to be hard to describe without a visual, but if you imagine a double axis graph, so you've got like four square, you know, like four square, the game, mm -hmm. you've got four squares, you've got a larger square divided into four quadrants. And if you imagine the horizontal axis is delivery, high touch and low touch delivery. So the left-hand side is low touch delivery. The right-hand side is high touch delivery. And then the vertical axis is at the bottom, low touch sales effort or low touch sales and the top is high touch sales. So you've got these four quadrants. Bottom left is low touch delivery, low touch sales. So low touch sales would be something like a book. Books are relatively inexpensive. They could almost be priced at impulse purchase price and they're very easy to deliver. You don't have to do anything. If it's an ebook, somebody just hits buy now, they pay 20 bucks, they download the thing. So that is an example of very low touch sale because you didn't have to have a long sales conversation with the person who bought your book and is low touch delivery because you didn't have to write it for that particular person. You didn't have to stick it in an envelope and put their address on it and go to the post office and send it to them. It's very, very easy. Low touch sales, low touch delivery. So the person who makes furniture could perhaps write a book for people who would be in that quadrant. You know, they could say, I've got this expertise with making furniture, I could write a book about how to make furniture and sell it to woodwork, you know, hobbyist woodworkers who um, are just, you know, doing it for fun in their garage on the weekends, something to do. And that like, that's just an example of a different way to package the same expertise to sell to a segment of the market that is probably never going to buy a $15,000 chair from you. 
but you can imbue that book with your point of view, your brand, your personality, your vision, your mission, all of these things would be baked into that book. And still you can sell it in a profitable way to a segment of the market who'd never purchased like a custom chair from you. So then if you can fill in those other quadrants, you know, if the bottom left quadrant is a book and the top right quadrant is you doing a, a custom project for someone who wants this art piece chair, then you can fill in the other two quadrants with things that are really easy for you to sell, like a, a productized service that you then take some effort or customization to deliver it. Or you could do something where, where my top left quadrant, so high touch sales, uh, low touch delivery. Right. So that would be more expensive info product like um, video course on how to do custom woodworking that you sell in Craftsy or something like that for 400 bucks. So each of these different quadrants is going to be a different buyer, but you're packaging up the same exact expertise in different formats with a different high touch, low touch kind of matrix. That's the kind of thing a business owner would do. They would say, I want to monetize my my expertise in a variety of ways to sell the different segments of the market. And then you design it so that each one uh, builds on the other. So the fact that I make and sell $15,000 chairs gives me the authority to write this book. And that's part of the branding and marketing and the story that you tell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And eventually some woodworker is going to be talking to some Silicon Valley billionaire about this book they're reading about making custom chairs. And all of a sudden, whoops, word of mouth you get someone who has kind of sneezed the information from a non-chair buyer has sneezed the information to a potential chair buyer. It's almost like everything in the other three quadrants, everything but the top right, even though you're selling it, it becomes marketing for the top right. Yep. Well, you have a picture of Bill Gates sitting in your $15,000 custom chair. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Instagram. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I believe you can be a technician and still think about these quadrants. You can still think about, well, what do I do with this? Because I think the motivation there is how can I keep doing what I'm doing? If what you really love is the craft, then what you have to find is a way to focus as much as you can on that craft, but in a way that your client values it, wants to spend money, and that ties your belief system and your talents and your passions all together. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe you're making custom chairs 20 hours a week. You're operating in technician mode. You need to have, you know, I want to say at least 10 hours a week, maybe, maybe 20 getting into entrepreneur mode and thinking, what strategy am I going to use to grow this business? Well, maybe I should take the time to write a book or maybe I should take the time to put together uh, a video course. And like thinking about that, you could argue with me about this, but I think the most important of the three personalities, the one that you can't hire out is the entrepreneur one. Mm -hmm. You can't outsource that one. Right. I mean, you you could, but it wouldn't be your business anymore. Yeah. So I I would argue the technician has a little bit of that in them. The technician who leaves the comfortable corporate existence on their own, with intention, has some entrepreneur in them. It's not, right, or they wouldn't yeah, have done exactly. It. It's not their primary necessarily. It could be, but it's not their primary. But they have some, and so your job is to stoke that. Yeah, I agree. That's a great point. It's almost surely in you somewhere. If you left your cushy corporate job, 
you must have it in there somewhere. So yeah, foster that as much as possible. Yeah. That, I mean, that takes courage. <laughs> sure. And it's a, it's a gigantic change. Like let's not, let's not understate that. Like if you've never freelanced, you've never been out on your own, you've never run a business. It's like, whoa, deep into the pool right away. It's funny when I started my first business, it just, there happened to be in the first week that I started the business, there was an entrepreneurial conference in Chicago that I went to was for women. And I wound up at a table full of women who had never run a business in their life. And I sat next to a woman who was a nurse, had never done anything else but nursing, but had this idea and she was throwing all her marbles in. And I sat there and I thought I was you know, I left a, a cushy partnership in a big consulting firm, but I knew what consulting was. I had clients. I mean, I, I knew I could make it. I mean, I really wasn't worried about it. And I looked at this woman thinking, oh, my God, she risked everything. I was in awe of her. And I think sometimes, you know, freelancers in particular need to be reminded that it took a lot of courage to do that. But the way to not have to go back and become an employee is to create a business around what you're doing. Right. Yeah. I, I recommend to people on a semi-regular basis, like if you're thinking about going solo, go work for an agency first because, you know, like a small agency. So you can kind of get a view into the nuts and bolts of all of the things that are, that, that take place. If you're working at like a giant fortune 50 company doing your, your skill and you go straight to solo, there are a lot of things that you're going to have to learn pretty quickly on the, on the fly an interim phase could be go to work as still an employee, but in a, a firm. So where you can kind of see what's going on, you can actually talk to the principals, you can get some insight into their thinking, the way they think about it. If you're looking for a kind of a easier way into the pool type of approach. Well, I always think about it as, as there are three primary skills that you need to, to run that kind of a business. You need a technical skill, right? You have to know your craft. You need to have business skills, which we've talked about. But the third thing are, are the consulting skills. And, and it doesn't matter whether you call yourself a consultant. If you're freelancing and you're running an authority style business, you need consulting skills. So it's how do you deliver information? How do you deal with conflict with clients? How do you deliver difficult information? How do you uh, sell when one to one. I'm not talking about marketing, but one to one selling. And especially if you're presenting to a team of people who makes a decision, how do you work in that? And how do you decide who the client is? It's all those consulting, pretty soft for the most part, consulting skills that will really help you as you develop kind of from the freelancer to the, the authority status. Yeah, I totally agree. You actually went broader than I was expecting. Like there's this bedside manner thing that you need that it really helps, but you actually took it even farther than that. And I completely agree with all of that. Like how to make a sale, like <laughs> it's not magic. There are reasons why big companies have entire teams of people who do nothing but sales. You're not going to magically get sales. There's absolutely, literally, unequivocally, no way for you to stay in business if you are not doing sales. So not imagining that that's not a skill that you need to build as an independent self-employed person, whether it's a freelancer consultant or whatever you want to call yourself. If you don't do sales, you're going to go out of business immediately. So you know, you have to do sales. People just all freak out like, oh, I don't want to be like a used car salesman and pressuring people into buying something they don't need. But man, I really need this gig. And <laughs> <laughs> like, you're not going to not do it. So you might as well learn how to do it well. 
you know, in a way that you can live with and is effective. Um, we should probably do a show on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You think? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the segues. Yes. The segues. Did we leave any stone unturned here? I mean, we talked about processes. We talked about systems a little bit. We talked about content, point of view. Yeah. And, you know, that you're always marketing. I think where we should go for a second is is where you opened it, which is you talked about the difference between a freelancer and a business owner is working in the business versus on the business. When you come right down to it, that's the biggest differentiator is that no matter how crazy it gets with your client work, you're still setting aside time to work on your business where you're not running to a client emergency or running 300 miles an hour with your hair on fire, but you're focusing on how do you add value to your client's bottom line and grow your business? <laughs> yes. I did a group coaching session last week, and one of the questions was, how much time should I be spending working on my business versus in it? I just casually was like, oh, probably 20. And everybody freaked out. <laughs> I just, I was like, I don't know, like 20, you know, just really casually. And everyone was like, their eyes were popping out of their heads like, you've got to be kidding me. And I was like, no, what else would you be doing? Like, what do you think you're doing? You need to build your business if you want it to grow. Like, it's not going to, it's, it's not going to happen by magic. I was a little demoralized. I was like, this is that shocking. And I know it is like when they brought it up, but it didn't even occur to me to kind of like ease my way into saying, dropping that number on everybody like a bomb. One of the reasons that's a surprise to people coming out of a corporate thing is that there's a lot of calculators and things like this online that tell you how to figure out what your hourly rate should be. Uh, and they just assume, yeah, they just assume you're going to be billing 40 hours a week. But see, here's the thing. You can't. I mean, maybe if you're a coder and you have a particular project, you can. But most professions, as a soloist, you're not going to have 40 hours a week of billable work. It doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. Unless you, you work you, 80 well, yeah, <laughs> you know, you're like a 25 year old just got out of college and have roommates and no relationship, no pets, no nothing. And you just like, you know, have pizza delivered and you just at the computer. <laughs> but that's I not sustainable. Like that. I do. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's I think of it as 20 hours a week on average of billable time on average. And so my rule of thumb, Jonathan, has always been 20 hours a week working on the business, which could be, you know, it includes marketing and selling. I mean, it's not like you're sitting there playing with designing a billing system for yourself. You know, you're, you're, you're investing in building something for your business. Right. I, I, th I think that's what it takes. That doesn't shock me at all. Yeah. Yeah. I want to couch this, but I kind of don't like, I kind of want to say, well, you know, when you're just getting started, then at least an hour a day, it, it, I mean, come on at least an hour a day, every work day, five hours a week. And even as I say, like, I won't even take on a coaching student that that doesn't can't commit to a minimum of five hours a week of doing homework and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It's just right. nothing's going to happen. Like I, they're just going to be disappointed that in themselves that they didn't follow through on anything. We've got every other week accountability calls. If they haven't got 10 hours between two phone calls, two weeks apart, if they can't find 10 hours in their schedule, nothing's going to happen. No, they don't really want to change. No, they don't really want to change. Argument. Right. Yeah. And that's the other yeah. thing I didn't, I, Apologies to any group coaching students that are listening to this, but I wanted to scream, how many hours did you spend on YouTube this week? <laughs> how many hours did you spend listening to podcasts or on Netflix this week? And you can't find five hours? You know, it's like, if you want to change, you will find the time. 
maybe it takes five years of struggling on the hamster wheel and the feast famine cycle and missing a mortgage payment. And before you start, you finally like, look, I got to make a change here. Things aren't getting better. It's not magically growing. Yeah. I mean, save yourself some trouble and think about it earlier. I mean, I would argue at the beginning of the business is the time you probably spend more thinking about it because it's what do I want to say about myself? How do I want to price myself? What what work do I want? What clients do I want to to engage in? Which people should I speak to who are going to help me build this business or who I can do referrals so we can build this sort of alliance team? I mean, those are all the big questions when you first start. And yeah, if you're not asking those at the beginning, you're going to be asking them after year one. (laughs) You're going to ask them eventually. I mean, yeah, you do. I meet people at all different stages of the process. And I know that a lot of people, including myself, was too clueless to even have asked any of those questions when I first went out and, or, or I would have been, cause I went, I went from corporate, like everything taking care of, you know, uh, what am I trying to say? Like naivete to, I didn't go straight solo. I went to a small agency. It was a very successful, but you know, sort of boutique firm. And wow, did my eyes get opened in, in the first month. I was like, <laughs> Whoa, I would have gotten killed if I went solo. It's, it's like going behind the looking glass. Yeah. So I know a lot of people just, they're just these unknown unknowns. Like they wouldn't, you could, I could present those questions to a bunch of people who would be like, I don't, I want to work with anyone. I don't, I don't know. I don't care. And when you're in that phase, you're still, as Seth Godin would say, you're looking for a job without a boss. And that's not what building a business is. And oh, by the way, it's not, you know, boss might be stressful, but being a freelancer is way more stressful than having a boss. Yes, So it really is. Yeah. So as annoyed as you are at your corporate job, I had the fantasy. I had the fantasy like, oh, I'm just going to I'm going to be able to sit in my house in my jammies making FileMaker databases for clients who are going to pay me 150 bucks an hour and I'm going to work 40 hours a week billable and it's going to be great. And I'm like doing the math. I'm like, oh, that'll be an annual salary of blah, blah, blah. I didn't even think about taxes. I didn't think about any of that. None of that. <laughs> just, I'm going to be rich. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, do not do this. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. No, no, it doesn't. But but the flip side is, and I mean, let's talk about the, the fun part of this, which is as you morph from thinking of yourself as a freelancer to thinking of yourself as a business owner, you get to do more of the things that you really enjoy. You get to express yourself in that business and you're building value for yourself and your family. You're creating something that lasts. And potentially, depending on how you do it, you may be creating something that's saleable, an actual asset that should you die or want to retire, you could sell at some point. So there's, I mean, there's a lot of benefits on the building the business side. Yeah. So quick side note, I I recently interviewed John Warlow, who wrote Built to Sell and uh, for my other, one of my other podcasts, Ditching Hourly. And he, he's all about He's like, I would say the sort of typical entrepreneur, like the total entrepreneur where it's like build a business, sell the business and build a new business, sell the business. And that that's sort of sort of a dude. And his main focus, uh, I think right now his main thing is like helping people figure out how much they should sell their business for, like what's the valuation of a particular business. So he's focused on that, which is not my thing. I'm planning to die with my boots on. But one of the things that came up in the interview was even if you think you'll never sell, Things can happen that change your mind about that. Uh, For example, 
health problems. Like boom, right out of the gate. Yeah. Okay. That can, that's eventually going to happen to everybody. You're going to have health problems. So, all right, maybe you want to sell at that point. Do you have something you can sell or what happens then? Are you going to live off insurance or social security or like, what are you going to do then? It's easy for me to be like, well, I'm never going to get sick. That's never going to happen to me. You know, you can kind of like pretend that's never going to happen. Humans kind of like, that's how they get through their day anyway, is pretend that's never going to happen. But the other one, his other reason I thought was much more, I was like, oh, he might be right. And the other one was, if you get a better opportunity, like you have a new idea, you get a new vision, you wake up one day and you're like, I'm meant to do something bigger. And I've got this business. You could just shut the business down, but if you could sell it, that would fund your next thing, your next bigger thing. And I was like, oh, wow, I could see that happening to me. I pivot like every 10 years anyway, you know, just like I get sick of something and I go on to something else or like I've got a new perspective and I want to do it in a different way. Like, oh, it would never would have occurred to me. Well, yeah, no, it never would have occurred to me to, to like, oh, wow. Like, what if maybe I would want to sell this business, maybe not retire, not to retire. That's the difference is I always thought like, oh, I'll never sell my business because I don't want to retire. But what if I want to go to create a new kind of business? And he's like, well, in that case, you might want to sell. And then how would you think about that? Do you have anything to sell really? And it's like, oh man, that's pretty interesting. So it's a good book to check out. Built to Sell is a really, there's advice even for people who aren't planning on selling because he talks a lot about productizing services. I sold my business. I, I did exactly that. It was financially very good. It was a very good thing to have done. And so, but part of that is I would always argue that you always want to think of the business with an eye to selling it just generally, not in a way that says, oh my God, I have to sell it in five years. So, so you start making bad decisions based on that, but just in a way that says, if I wanted to move on to something else, is there something in what I'm doing that would have value to a potential buyer? And you still make the decision based on how you want to run your business, how you have set up your brand, your strategy. You, you don't change that. But it may make some of those smaller decisions for you when you start to look at it at a longer term through a different lens. Yeah, I mean, it only makes sense. Like if the value of your business is not obvious to an outside seller, even if you're not planning on selling, if it's not obviously valuable, you have to ask yourself, well, am I building any value here? And if you're not, then you have to ask yourself, well, wouldn't it be a good thing if I was? Because that <laughs> <laughs> that means you're getting profits. And I don't even want to start talking about profits and hourly billing because we've already been talking for 45 minutes. But if you're billing by the hour, you have no profits. You're operating on razor thin margins and you know it because look at your finances. So it takes a singularly disciplined person to actually have profits left over when they're billing by the hour. It's very rare. That's true. That's true. So have we made our case? I think so. I feel like I've been yelling. I feel like I've been yelling at everyone. <laughs> Sorry well, you about never that. raised your voice. Yeah. Well, that's good. I guess I'm learning. <laughs> well, I think we're I think we're both passionate about this because it's I mean, it's one thing if if what you want to be is a freelancer, you want to be a craftsperson and you're not worried about any of those things, there's no judgment. Go forth and conquer. But if what you really want to be is ultimately an authority, and we think that's why people listen to this podcast, then you really have to think about everything you're doing as a business owner. That's the only way you're going to build the the gravitas and the content and the you know the reputation to be an authority. And then 
it's also the only way you can ensure that you're building an asset that will help you in the long run that pays off for all the hard work you're putting in. Ditto. Agreed. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> <laughs> all right, cool. <sighs> all right. I'm going to stick a fork in it. I, I'm like, I feel another rant coming on, so we better wrap. <laughs> we better. <laughs> uh, okay, folks. So that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye-bye.